Hey there, Zach here. I hope you're weathering the COVID storm all right, and I'm so excited that you're going to hang out with us for an hour to talk about dinosaurs and playing God and just how wonderful Laura Dern is. But before we begin, I feel like I need to explain something. Uh, somewhere around the 27-minute mark, I made this joke. What if we had John Williams, you know, make a soundtrack to 2001? Maybe or to this podcast. Oh, well, that's, 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 that's where I thought you were going to go with it. There we go. John Williams, you must work within the constraints of a Sega Genesis synthesizer because that's the motif <laughs> I've created. <laughs> so that got me thinking. What did the Jurassic Park Sega Genesis game sound like? Well, short answer, not great. <laughs> I mean, Sam Powell did a really good job of making the music tense and creepy, but the movie studio wasn't going to let anyone near their precious orchestral score was something so childish as a video game console. Never mind the fact that the Sega Genesis has not one but two synthesizers built in and was capable of some incredible music for its time, but whatever. I'm not mad. It's still an awesome game. On a side note, they actually hired a paleontologist to advise the developers on that game, and he brought a dead chicken from the grocery store and dissected it in front of them to show them the anatomy of theropods, which is totally wonderful after you have listened to this episode. But I digress. In honor of one of the greatest film scores of all time and the video game music that could have been, the musical transitions this week will all be my Sega Genesis covers of the Jurassic Park music. You're welcome. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte, and my favorite dinosaur is the Brontosaurus. And yes, it is real. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, but it was. And then it it was, then it, then it wasn't, and now it is again. I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my favorite dinosaur is the Ankylosaurus because it has armor on its eyelids and a giant club for breaking T-Rex ankles, and that's just the coolest. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina, and my favorite dinosaur is the Triceratops. I'm Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and my favorite dinosaur is a pterodactyl. I'm so impressed that nobody jumped in and said, I was like, nothing, Rachel? Nothing, Rachel? <laughs> I'm holding my tongue! I knew that somebody might have a problem, but really it's just that I know so few dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and now you can subtract one more. <laughs> I always like the pterodactyls because they can fly. <laughs> but they're not dinosaurs. They're not dinosaurs. Hey, pterodactyls are in the land before time, people. They're a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> My soul is being crushed. <laughs> okay, so my name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lensburg, Kansas. I could not choose a single dinosaur that was my favorite. I chose three. Uh, so <laughs> I, so uh, I like Demetriodon, uh, mostly oh, because uh, I think the sail is super awesome. Not a dinosaur. Demetriodon? Yeah. yeah. That was 
prior to the Mesozoic. It's closer to, to well, mammals. Okay. So, what even yes. is a dinosaur? Uh, no, I think we're going to have to unpack that here. <laughs> all right. Okay, I'll, let, let I'm him finish and then we will. Technically, that that's true. All right. Dilophosaurus um, okay. is Ooh. one of my particular favorites. Definitely a dinosaur. Um, and then the the one that I think actually I do like the best, though, is um, Archaeopteryx. <sighs> yes, oh, I do like Archaeopteryx. Yeah. Is Archaeopteryx technically a dinosaur? Technically or is a it dinosaur. A bird? Technically a dinosaur and a bird. In fact, the only one that is Yes, the only one both. is both. All right. I'll go there. It is the transition. It is the missing link. It is the and missing the link. The Archaeopteryx fossils are beautiful. It also justifies my fear of chickens. <laughs> oh, because they're dinosaurs. Yeah, it's yes, true. they are. Yeah. Okay, so we have to unpack all of that, right? Because a few of us disagreed with the categorization of what is a dinosaur. <laughs> um, so, science educator, would you like to try to unpack? No, because I'm, <laughs> I'm looking it up too. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm trying to why, remember myself. This is why we need. <laughs> Don't um, throw me Dr. under the bus. Scott, the paleontologist from <laughs> Dinosaur Train, to come on the show. It's true. Um, because so okay, well, I can tell well, you well, why people. Well, I can tell you why people think that they're dinosaurs. Like why everyone does that. Well, I mean, but I could do but, that because they're reptiles yeah. from the same time period. Well, because of the same time period, they were they were probably referred yeah. to that at one point for you know, potentially an error someone made or simplicity to be able to talk about those types, different types of animals from the same time, it caught on and bam, it took off. Mm. It's so like, well, but I mean, at the same time, like sharks and dragonflies and a species of crab all lived at the same time, but none of us confuse mm -hmm. them for dinosaurs. Yeah, but they're just because of the way that they've always been grouped together in, in and they materials. currently live and they currently live now. I think the to me, the biggest challenge is Something that lived really a long time ago and and doesn't exist now, therefore is, right? That it that it's only, um, right? It's the Jurassic Age, and therefore everything that lives during Jurassic Age, which is uh, a little hint that we're talking about Jurassic Park today. Hey, oh, um, yes, but it's Jurassic Age is not the only age of the dinosaurs. No, no, no. But that's what I was using an example oh. uh, for one that everybody knows. <laughs> I, I could talk about the Mesozoic era if you really like. Um, such a nice era. In which the Dimetrodon <laughs> did not live. Just Yes. Exactly. So you could you I think that's our problem. That if it exists now and it existed then, well then it's clearly not a dinosaur because we all know that dinosaurs went extinct sixty five million years ago. Every single one of them, not a single one left. Right? And so I think it's it's a fallacy of our um, generalization of things mm -hmm. that happen. Oh, absolutely. It's like yes. how Pluto used to be a planet and now it's Correct. not and, a planet. And, our and how it should have never been called a planet. Like ever. Yeah. But it had to change its definition. Correct. Right. As science was changing and it changed the definition or as we got better science. Right. Just like going to your favorite dinosaur, right? The Brontosaurus. Right. Is it a Brontosaurus? Is it a Brachiosaurus? Is it an Apatosaurus? Is it just a, a genetically changed Apatosaurus? What really is it? And and part of the hard conversation is that, like we were talking when we were looking at human fossils and human evolution, it's not just an entire skeleton just laying there in the open waiting for us to be like, oh, I can categorize this. It's like 
two or three bones or maybe 10 bones out of hundreds, right? We're not, we're not looking at an entire skeleton making, and none of us are actually doing this. Um, they are not looking at this uh, with, yeah. with all the information. So it, it changes, which I think is a beautiful thing about, about science and why the Brontosaurus is a great, a great example of that. I also just wanted to add to what um, Rachel was saying. As I've already demonstrated, I know very little about how dinosaurs are uh, classified, but I do maintain that the pterodactyl is one I love. And fine, you say it's not a dinosaur. I also still believe in my heart that Pluto is a planet. So I've, <gasps> it, there you have it. Uh, my point is, <laughs> even though I am very scientifically wrong about uh my classifications here. Um, this is just reminding me of the conversations about like natural kinds and how in science all the time, there's always this argument about like what is a natural kind um, and a natural kind being something that is supposed to like reveal groupings in, that reveal to us like natural structures of the world rather than groupings based on what we as humans or scientists impose on objects to um, create a, a classificatory system that well, meets that the interests word. of, yeah, it's a lot of syllables, um, <laughs> that meets the interests of like whatever humans are doing rather than something that is supposed to like naturally arise, which that also is really tricky. But I just thought I'd point that out as like something we're talking about is like how how do you classify things and a lot of that has to do with what we try to identify as a natural kind i think well and that's a really good transition into the movie itself because at the time that Jurassic Park was made in what did we say 93 we had a certain conception of what dinosaurs were and weren't mm -hmm. and we were still in the whole like monster movie way of thinking about dinosaurs and i don't did any of you read the michael crichton book that it's based on yes no. i was obsessed with adam michael adam crichton. we can't hear you shaking nodding your head oh sorry yes I <laughs> turns out surprisingly i love michael crichton and that book had some had some really good scientific points in it that were disregarded by the filmmakers, which is true for every single one of his books, because he's always very careful to uh, that. Everything in his books are pl is plausible and is based on actual, at least theoretical science. And then when they make a movie out of his books, they just blow it all up. But it was a good movie regardless. Um, but one of the things that they, that they did in, in, the filmmakers decisions was to really play up the monster movie aspect. And so you see at the, at the opening scene when they're at that dig site and they're doing the, the, the like echo imaging with that machine. And it comes up with this fully intact velociraptor. Yeah. Um, the skeleton. That thing doesn't look very scary. It's like a so. giant Turkey. And then he comes up uh, with, with that, that claw <laughs> <laughs> and like slices his belly. retractable claw. Or he's sure. like, oh, and the point is you're still alive when it starts eating you. <laughs> the kid's like, ah. You're wonderful. But how big is the Velociraptor? 
in in reality. <laughs> it's like smaller than a. Chi- it's like about the size of a chicken yeah. or a big turkey. It's like it a, really I is a big turkey. Tur- I think it's yeah. Yeah. It's like it's a tur- really actually very small. It's a killer turkey. Um, yeah. What Turkeys are terrifying. They were, well, and there you go. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. But what what they were basing it on was really more of a Utah raptor or even exactly. a Dinonychus. Yep. But the name Utah raptor or Dinonychus, they they aren't very it's imposing. Nice. But Steven Spielberg really liked the name Velociraptor because it exactly. sounded cooler, and so he made that um, the dinosaur. And the, the Velociraptor is now like I think it's the second most well known dinosaur. In the world after T Rex, after T Rex, and yep. but people don't know what it really is, and you get this instead, this scaly monster, and they addressed it later in Jurassic World, I think, that where they were like, "Wait, you're genetically modifying these dinosaurs," and the scientist is like, "Yeah, duh, we had to do it with all of them because if we gave right. you actual like." the actual dinosaurs, you wouldn't recognize them and nobody would pay to come see them. And so we had to make them bigger and scarier and we had to have them not be feathered. And uh, mm-hmm. so they, they kind of retconned it and covered their butts, but they uh, they were not very accurate in the movie because they were playing up to what we imagine these terrible lizards were, which is what dinosaur means. When in reality, they're just animals. And sometimes animals aren't as dramatic and exciting as. And sometimes they are. Yeah, well. Right. I mean, to be fair, right. I, 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 a crocodile is pretty darn scary. And, and sometimes they're made the opposite, right? How many of us are afraid of hippos? And we really all should be very afraid of hippos. But I thought you know? they were cute. And hungry. Yeah. If there was a hippo in Pennsylvania, I would certainly be scared of it and a lot of other things. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Well, so, you know, and I think too, when you talk about this particular film with Jurassic Park and like its influence on society and under mm-hmm. general understandings. And so you can always look at films and see about their influence on society. And, you know, I think that comes into play when you talk about, like, the discussion about brontosaurus and, and what is a dinosaur and what isn't a dinosaur. You know, dinosaur, you know, it's called Jurassic Park, but not all dinosaurs in the film occurred during, during that Jurassic time era. frame. Right. right. They're mostly and so, yeah. and so there's that. But then <laughs> you get into um, what about the influence and impact on the scientific community itself and you look at how prior to that release of that film and that line of research about the connection between dinosaurs and modern day birds was not, you know, an accepted view when this film came out. And it's not like the film changed that immediately, but it kind of elevated Jack Horner's research to a different level because he was the one who served as the scientific consultant for the book and the film. And so it really kind of elevated his views and his influence on the community itself. Which I think is really fascinating. So you're saying if you're a scientist and you have some fringe view, the best thing you can do is to find Steven Spielberg and have Correct. him have <laughs> yeah. him make a movie about your view. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> so all of our scientists out there listening. Yes. There's That's your how track. To do it. Find Steven Spielberg. We know him, you know. So forget peer review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I also just want to, this is a side note, but Laura Dern, she is so cute in Jurassic Park. <laughs> I just, I never oh, would have appreciated so that. Everything. <laughs> but I never would have appreciated that as a kid because, like, I didn't care about Laura Dern. But, like, you know, you learn who actors and actresses are as you grow up. And then when you go back to watch them in their younger years, man, she's just so cute. <laughs> I, I actually have no idea who you're talking about. What? She was um, Ellie. Dr. Ellie. Sattler. Dr. Yeah. Ellie Sattler. Yeah. The, the, anthro- the paleobotanist. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah. What what yeah. what I mean by that is I I don't know as I aged who people oh. become. And so you you said that name and by deduction oh. I could figure it out because there's, you know, two females in the show the adult one and the child one um <laughs> have you seen the new star wars movies <laughs> you're funny <laughs> no, no I, I have not <laughs> uh, all right so well, she was in last jedi so again I, I by deduction i can figure out who you're talking about but i i couldn't tell you the name of the people there, the people they played, or the names of the characters themselves. That yeah, when I, I have watch- that useless skill. I can do that. Yeah, so does my husband. So <laughs> I don't. So anyway, sorry for the parenthetical aside, but Jack Horner was a name that I recognized. <laughs> That's good. I recognized him primarily for his work in the corner, eating his. Uh- <laughs> What is he eating? Little Jack Corner sat in the plum corner. Plum pie. Yeah, plum pie. That's right. He's stuck in, <laughs> in his I am not pulled familiar out a plum with that. And what a great boy am I? Yeah, yeah. Not familiar with that one. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I am so looking forward to hearing this one when it comes out. So, can I just say that in this movie, the scene where they are. They, they're at the island and they get in the in the jeeps at the very beginning or at the very beginning and they uh-huh. drive and they they get to the open plane not and... the very very beginning no 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 one so they're when on they... the island okay. we're, we're okay, already yeah. a while in and all of the main characters are in their jeeps and they get out to the out to the plains and i think uh I think it says something like "Welcome to Jurassic Park," and the <laughs> starts in the background, and mm-hmm. you just see um, the doctor mm-hmm. um, uh, Grant's last name, Doctor Grant, like take off his sunglasses and stand up and grab Doctor mm-hmm. Sadler's head and turn it over, and you, the camera pans out, and there's just all of these giant sauropods walking mm-hmm. around and you see the um the parasaurol office in the background eating out of the water and mm-hmm. and the brachiosaurus stands up on its on its hind legs and eats something and then slams on the ground in that moment i discovered a a deep yearning inside of me that has bothered me ever since that i will never see a sauropod in person mm-hmm. and i felt so like strangely at home and familiar um, in that scene that it still gives me goosebumps and brings a tear to my eye thinking about it. Like there's a line from a song in the Muppet movie that says, there's not a word yet for old friends who've just met. And that's how I felt in that moment. Like this is connecting to some, something deep within me. And 
Uh, but there's a deep sadness that I'll never actually be in the presence of one of these beautiful giants other than in their bones. Mm. Yeah. So I know that's not really connected to what we were saying, but I felt I felt like I needed to I needed no, to but share I, that. But it's so wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Um I think you're tapping into something though of why we feel this way, especially in the age of you know, big scary monsters and big bluster big blockbuster Spielberg hits when this movie was coming out in the 90s. It did something for those of us because it's it's talking about a connection to the past and how we recreate the past now. And for me, when I I I, I can visualize that thing, you 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 relate it very very nicely. Um, I also connected to that scene. I think so did many other people, which is why it made it to the beginning of the movie. But there's something powerful about being in the past and experiencing it now. And to me, that's that's part of the religious side of this movie, is that it, it gives us that connection that so many of us seek, that we recognize that the world exists and will continue to exist long after we're not here and long after people don't even know who we are or that we existed. And this gives us that little bit of hope. It gives us that connection to what was and what will be. So I, I think it's I think it's very apt to be tied to it. And I I don't know if you would describe it this way, Zach or Rachel, but I think the, I also um, maybe wouldn't describe the sadness part so much, but I like get the goosebumps in that scene too and feel, you know, you're supposed to feel the sense of beauty with the music as it swells. And, you know, I just, it's, it's a great scene. And I feel that I would describe that as awe. I was um, just going to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think there are a lot of different ways um, colloquially that we would describe awe experiences, but I've been reading a lot um, about awe and two elements that are um, identified as really key for awe experiences across the board um, is the feeling um, or the experience of vastness and the need for accommodation. And I, when I think about that scene for me, I could see how both of those things are happening. Uh, The vastness portion being something that's connected to time, um, but also like if you imagine being a human standing in the presence of these creatures, like they are just very big, but I think it's more than that. It's just this um, impossibility most of the time for us to transcend time in the way that you see it happen in Jurassic Park because the characters are experiencing something that like shouldn't be there (laughs) just based on what time and natural selection has done. And I think the need for accommodation piece is just the fact that this, this like impossible situation is happening and you have to reorder your mental schemas to uh, accommodate what you are sensing in the world um, to make sense of it. And when those two things happen, people will often describe that as an awe experience. And um, so I, I think that's also like why awe is so prevalent in religious experiences because of the way that people uh, have religious experiences that are touching on something 
deeper and um, maybe use the language like more transcendent um, and all, all these other descriptors of something that like goes beyond the mundane experiences of everyday life. And I think that that's uh, what that scene at the beginning of the movie is trying to tap into a little bit too. And so I think that's why it feels appropriate to me to describe that as awe. Hmm. Have you ever watched the scene with the music off? Mm-mm. No, I'm sure it's very different. <laughs> it, I, I, no, because I, I, so like I totally agree with you, Kendra. Like the, these descriptions of awe like make a ton of sense to me. And, and it is, it's the same feeling that I have like when I watch that scene from the movie. And then when I watch it with the sound off, the experience is totally different, which is like huh. what is sort of fascinating to me about like the, the the piece of awe that I think is always so important that I think movies do in this really interesting way, right? Is that they're they're whole bodily sensations, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a visual and a and an auditory cue that that moves you out of your day-to-day reality. And when you start taking those pieces away, you can sort of deconstruct that feeling of awe. And I think that to me is a sign of like how important like a scene like that becomes. And it it totally makes sense then, right? That a whole generation of people are fascinated, at least in a sort of facile way, with dinosaurs after having that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And the music piece, I think, is uh, I would say that that really enhances the vastness part of awe because uh, the the kind of music that swells up and that just fills the space around you, it's like you're hearing vastness almost. I mean, this (laughs) is like this is John Williams, like at John yeah. Williams' best, oh, yeah. right? Absolutely. And I think it's it's fascinating to me, like how many of the like movies that we've been interested in, that we've talked about, that we've done, right? Like they almost all have, like many of them, not all of them, but many of them have John Williams compositions, <laughs> right? That are that's part of what's well, going he's, on. He's very good. Yeah. But I think it's because it it inspires those sort. It inspires that kind of feeling, like, and that's an important mm. part of sort of what's going on here. So when you get that feeling of vastness with John Williams's help, you feel awe and this kind of the kind of like the fear of the Lord sort of fear, not the fear of the T-Rex kind of fear, but like the fear (laughs) that is just this awe in bigness that you get from the sauropods. When you have that bigness without John Williams, you end up with 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then you just feel uncomfortable. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I, I mean that seriously. That it's it's like, it's big, and it's overwhelming, and it's just big and overwhelming. And then you're left to make up your own mind, and my own mind is terrifying. I, I don't think that's untrue. And then I think you can actually push it one step further, right? Like your research project that's associated with the film that has the John Williams music in the background and makes that feeling of awe now gets more funding, right? Mm. So you can look at projects in archaeology that were suddenly funded and there was an uptick in funding after the release of Jurassic Park. Right. There's this wider public interest piece. We talk about this all the time in astrobiology, right? Like um, the release of the Martian rock that was supposed to have life from Mars on it, ALH 84001. It didn't. But the only reason the field of astrobiology exists is because so much money was pumped into it after that announcement. So there's this correlation, I think, of of a really interesting piece of like how these movies 
then inspire subsequent sort of generations of actual research that goes mm-hmm. on, often overturning what it is that is so critical about the movie in the first place. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that's a great point. One smart cookie right there. Well said. <laughs> now I just want to sit here in silence. <laughs> <laughs> it's uncomfortable. So we clearly are not going to be funded later. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if we had John Williams, you know, make a soundtrack oh, to 2001? So cool. Maybe or to this podcast. Oh well, that's, that's, that's where I thought you were going to go with it. There we go. John Williams, you must work within the constraints of a Sega Genesis synthesizer because that's the motif <laughs> I've created. Well, if you would like a if you would like a song for this one, I have no idea why this is a song. I'm just throwing that one out there. Literally no idea. Um, but for uh, religious tradition in Judaism, more the liberal streams of Judaism, specifically reform, like every religious tradition, we try to get them young. So we have this thing called Tot Shabbat because it it has some rhyming in there. So how do we how do we teach little ones tots usually defined as between ages one and six, give or take, depending on the organization you're in. And so lots of places will do this and preschools will do this. And in that setting, there's a song called There's a Dinosaur Knocking at My Door. And I don't know if the UCCs or the Presbyterians or everyone else has this, but but we have it. And I'm going to give you just just a tiny little taste of this. Because I think it it fits. There's a dinosaur knocking at my door. Knocking one, two, three. There's a dinosaur knocking at my door. And he wants to have Shabbat with me. (laughs) And then, because we in our household, we loved that. And it's, it's much longer than that, right? But we loved that. So we in our love of dinosaurs, started adding things. So in in our home, we added the verse, and I understand that it's not a dinosaur, but it's okay. It was one of Adrian's first that he could pronounce. So The pterodactyl? The, <laughs> not there Sorry. yet. Are we about to have to um, give you a hard time because you gave you know, others a yes. hard time? Okay. There's a Demetriodon with his keeper on, with his keeper on. <laughs> and so we made lots. There's, uh, and then we did, there's a Pteranodon. Um, all right. So also we just not did. A dinosaur. Yes, I know. And then we did T Rex. <laughs> well, but but we didn't say it had to be. Episode. It did not have to be a this dinosaur. It's going to be a really it's, fun one. It started with the dinosaur, but I never said that the Demetrodon or the Pteranodon were dinosaurs in the song. They just happened to exist at the same time, and all of his friends came together. No, there's a really great episode of The the Dinosaur Train about the fact that Pteranodons are not dinosaurs, but Mm -hmm. like 
they adopted Buddy, who's a T-Rex. Yes, who is a dinosaur. Right? And so then there's this whole thing with like the dinosaur games or something. And yeah. they're like, oh, but you're not dinosaurs. Can you be involved? And then they have this whole great explanation about taxonomy and why at the very – at the end of it all, we're all together and we're all one. I and love that show. United by this bond of love and it doesn't matter what our taxonomy is. And that's beautiful. I need to reach out to Dr. Scott again. And again and again. And again. I know. Especially after this show, this episode comes out, I'll definitely do it. Hey, Dr. Scott, we talked about you. We'd love to have you on Major Fan Club. So I think, just going to throw this one out there. Um, just moving, moving past that a little bit. And whatever guy that comes out always and says, point of fact, and then bursts everyone's bubble. Yes. That should be, that should be me. And I'll just keep jumping <laughs> in and saying, point of fact, Dimetrodon <laughs> is not a dinosaur. <laughs> you can interject that in the final episode anyway rachel <laughs> we both interrupted you I, you know I, nothing unusual here <laughs> i i was just using that um <laughs> that song to sort of bridge this idea of how do we also right since one of the one of the goals with our conversations is to see how we deal with science and religion together and so for me we can that song talks about a love that so many kids and their parents, I might add, have for dinosaurs and how we can use that secular love of something to add to right, to add the religious elements. So in our version, we say, and this one's going to light the Shabbat candles and this one's going to eat the challah and this one's wearing his kippah. A kippah is also known as a yarmulke or a skull cap or it's the hat that Jews wear when we pray or other times of the day, etc. So like using using something that we have to teach religious element, I think is also really a good way to bring both into the realm of of the world that we're looking at, which when I look at the movie Jurassic Park, one of the things it did is to take science and all of its air issues I recognize, but it it was one of the first ones that really, not first, but it had a lot of science in there and it made this blockbuster movie, right? They, I mean, they there were people in lab coats and they were, um, they were talking about it and, and it wasn't, it wasn't scary. The science, doing the scientist wasn't scary. It was what the scientists did that was scary and their product, but the, the science itself wasn't. And I think that that's really important to, to bring to the forefront of the general population, whatever that looks like. Well, it wasn't what the scientists did that was scary. It was what, it was what the billionaire did that was it's scary. always the billionaire. That's right? the theme it's that also the comes out of looking at these movies. The billionaire is always to blame. Jurassic Park, the book, is all about how capitalism ruins everything. And you take this beautiful discovery and you try to patent it and slap it on a lunchbox before you've had the chance to ask. Your scientists are so should busy I? asking if they could. <laughs> they never stop to ask if they should. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Malcolm. And then, <laughs> well, and I think what's interesting too, you bring up that particular part. That's, that's a great scene uh, during the lunch discussion right before they go out on the tour. And he's trying, you know, John Hammond's trying to get their feedback. And, you know, I, I think that scene's fascinating to really get into about, you know, should they be doing these? Should they not? And, you know, Hammond tries to fire back by using the, you know, example of condors and, and how, you know, 
uh, Ian Malcolm then comes back and says, no, 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 that they went away because of us, not because of nature. And he even uses the phrase nature selected them for extinction. And what I think is interesting too, is that then Hammond or then um, yeah, Hammond then goes the next step and talks about how can we, you know, he says, how can we stand in the light of discovery and not act? And so then you start getting into this conversation about the ethics going behind science and should science do anything it can. And Ian's response was interesting. He says, oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. Mm. And you're just kind of like, whoa. And not in this film, but in Jurassic Park 3, uh, when they go back to the one of the islands, the mother of the missing child says something, you know, sees sees the lab, and she says to Alan Grant, you know, um, this is how you make dinosaurs, and he turns and responds to her and says, no, this is how you play God. Mm. So it's really, I think it really gets into that whole conversation about what should there be, lim- you know, limitations placed on what science can do. Yeah. Well, now you're in the realm of like, you know, there's real possibility in the next decade that we could have a living woolly mammoth. Yeah. And there are people trying to recreate uh, the Pleistocene Park <laughs> in Siberia. It, it sort of just occurred to me. I, 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 I want to track this down more, though, right? But like it, we've, we've also sort of talked about with all these movies, right, that they, they have these sort of like inspirational effects that like in a certain sense, these these particularly the science fiction movies are projecting what we wish could happen. Right. And you have this generation of scientists afterward that are like, oh, yeah, we, we, we can do that. Uh, like, we're going to make that happen. Right. Like, I don't know. The iPad is just Challenge a poor accepted. man's. Yeah. Right. The iPad is just a poor man's tricorder. I mean, like, Absolutely. this is like, this is really sort of like what I look at. And I'm like, okay. Right. I, I, I feel like I need to go back and look more closely at that scene where they're writing and it's like clearly like mocking Disney World. Right. Where they're like, going through the labs and they're sitting in their chair and yeah. it's showing them the things. And then there's the little movie that jumps up about like how it is that we did this and we spliced this with this. And I'm like, I feel like I've seen like CRISPR Cas9 explanation videos that could probably be popped mm. into that scene of the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of like how it's getting explained. And I would wonder, I don't, it just made me think like, it feels weird as Zach is saying, like we could have woolly mammoths that like, are we really at the phase where like Jurassic Park isn't like a fun science fiction thing, but like it's a prediction of what the future might look like mm. at this point in terms of where we're at with some of these editing technologies in terms of dinosaurs? Probably not because no. the whole yeah. the whole recovering even somewhat viable DNA from Amber is just it's fantasy. Right. There are some scientists out there trying to reverse engineer dinosaurs from chickens and try to express the genes. Are you serious? Yeah. Because, you know, when uh, when creatures evolve, they don't they don't lose their right, right, right. genes. They just get turned off. And so you, you isolate the, the gene for, say, a tail or scales or teeth, and you you can express that one and then diminish the ones for feathers and whatnot. And with with current ethics guidelines are not allowed to bring these chickens to full term but in the embryonic state then they can grow teeth in chickens and scales and whatnot and so there's but then even then you're not you're not recreating a dilophosaurus 
from a chicken. But in terms of something that we might be able to find viable DNA for, like like the woolly mammoth, and then they're talking about uh, about make creating like a woolly mammoth elephant hybrid, and then through selective breeding, breeding out the elephant until it's just woolly mammoth, and that feels different uh, to me. <laughs> One, um, this is more reasons why my fears of chickens are justified. But two, <laughs> I i mean, I'm waiting for the day where I'm going to have things like, you know, pteropod tenders that I can go, you know, get from the store, apparently. I really want you to do that. I, I, I want we, to we, see we, you have a well, packaging that says pteropod tenders. So here's, <laughs> here's an ethical. There'll be an organic there. version and a non-organic version yeah. based on like Free how range. many- Free range. Or yeah, free range. all GMO though. <laughs> <laughs> but here's an ethical issue. So right now there is a concerted effort to um, to save the horseshoe crab, which mm-hmm. has survived every single mass extinction to date, but Except is humans. now threatened by humans because we use their blood for our vaccines, and we also. Our fishing has messed up their natural processes and whatnot off the East Coast. And so now there's this effort to to preserve their habitat and to preserve them. Because if we lose them, they're gone. So imagine instead we have preserved horseshoe crab DNA somewhere. And we can theoretically just resurrect them. Now, I could see there being some profit-driven policy where it's like, well, okay, so for now, yeah, continue to use them, continue to overfish in this area because we need it now and we'll preserve it for later and then we'll reintroduce them in the future. And so we don't need to worry so much about preserving their habitat because we can always resurrect them later. And does having the ability to bring back extinct species make us poorer stewards of what we have now, give us a false sense of power and security. Yeah, it makes me think of just the the ways we already regulate, like what we should or should not do through science. And I'm thinking of just like the way that if you want to do any research project with human subjects, that you go and get approval from an institutional review board. And, um, you know, there are like other ways people protest um, like scientific testing on animals by saying, oh, I'm only going to buy my whatever makeup or shampoo if it's not tested on animals, like different ways that we regulate what we approve of in terms of like carrying out the scientific method. And it's just really interesting because I think a lot of that has to do with answering the question, will this be good for humans? Um, or like, will this cause harm to humanity? And then like some people will also add the question, uh, like, will this cause harm to animals? And then I, maybe now it's like becoming more the norm to also ask, like, is this good for the environment? And not just because what's good for the environment could be good for humans. Because <laughs> um, sometimes I think that like scientific research might not do something that would harm the environment, but only because it would be detrimental to human life. And it seems like now people are 
becoming more aware of how it's not like maybe decentering humans a little bit from concerns about what is ethical in scientific research. And so that I think is really interesting in the context of the the film because there's clearly uh, like when everybody first goes to the island, there's the awe experiences, the, you know, the kids are excited. It's like just this adventure and yeah, everybody wants to see the dinosaurs. And then there's like different, at different moments, the concerns creep in. And some of those concerns are about like, oh, well, like we need to make sure that the fences are strong enough to keep the dinosaurs back during feeding time so that they don't try to like eat the humans. Um <laughs> And I think that it's like the human-centric ethical questions about like, what is this going to harm us? Is this going to kill us? And I think at different moments, characters also just like ask, like, is this okay in its own right? Like apart from how it will affect humans, it like puts the responsibility on humans to like do something responsible for the world, I think. Um, and maybe, I don't know, be curious to hear what y'all think if maybe it's like all about the concern for the people in the film. Um, and if that's like the ultimate reason why they want to like shut it down or if this is really, if there are characters who are actually saying like, no, this is um, unethical to like interfere in like the processes of natural selection, not because of, like the role that humans play in the world, but just because that is an unpredictable process and we should not try to be in control of it. Um, well, so at the yeah, lunch so scene, that- like basically the two things is like the part where humans are uh, the main concern ethically and the part where we're not. <laughs> right. At the lunch scene, they really, you know, the, the three main scientists, well, the three scientists really do push back on the idea should this have been done. Yeah, I mean, I, we talked about what Ian Malcolm said earlier, um, but you have. But you I guess know, the why is the more interesting part. Because they talk about how I, I'm fairly certain they talk about the fact that as as he as Ian Malcolm says, you know, nature selected them for extinction. Um, and then the others talk about the fact that that they're saying, was this really a good idea? Because, you know, Nate, they were naturally selected for extinction. So it's kind of the plot of the second movie. Is that there's a second island? Oh yeah, and I they forget were about bred. that movie. I love the Lost World, but those really? <laughs> we can get into that in another. I loved movie. it when they until they went to San Diego. Jurassic Park three anyway. was a joke. Jurassic Park two had its moments. Anyway, so the plot of that movie is that there's a second island that was for breeding purposes, and all the dinosaurs were bred with a certain vitamin deficiency, where if they didn't get this supplement from their feeders, they would all die. And that was kind of a fail-safe mechanism so that if it ever went wrong, that they wouldn't be able to survive. But they have adapted quickly Mm -hmm. to that. And so they are thriving and surviving on this island. And they've they've created, they've just kind of adapted into their own separate territories. And it's this whole enclosed biome where it's this lost world. And the people from InGen want to get want to get there so that they can go get the dinosaurs and they can bring them and make a Jurassic Park in San Diego because that's going to go great. And they want to exploit them. But John Hammond, who's now old and he's 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 sick in bed and he doesn't have power over his company anymore, 
he now sees the error of his capitalism, as it were, and has such love and sympathy for these creatures. And he wants them to be saved. And he wants that to be preserved as a place just for them. Like he feels so sad that humans have interfered so much in their lives and in, in, in the natural way of, of life that we just want to preserve this island instead of having it be ransacked once again for profit. And so then the whole movie is a battle between the people trying to save the dinosaurs for the dinosaurs own sake and to give them a second chance at living because they didn't ask to be resurrected. And then also the people out for profit who want to create a new park. And then that goes terribly wrong. And a T-Rex ends up loose in San Diego and eats a dog, which is a really sad <sighs> part of the movie. And I guess that's like really getting at my ultimate question is like, we want to bring the woolly mammoth back. Are we bringing it back for its own enjoyment of the 21st century? <laughs> or are, are we bringing it back because we think it's going to like be, you know, useful like, for humans? Yeah, Netflix is pretty great. You know who'd love this? A woolly mammoth. We should bring them back in <laughs> yeah. so they can experience that. <laughs> Netflix and chill, right? like Kendra's question. I, th I think it's I, th I think it's a critical question. And and I think Jurassic Park is sort of an interesting movie to talk about it in because I don't know if it was I just don't know how prevalent that sort of like imagining of decentering human beings was at that period in the 90s, right? Or is that like a more contemporary question that we want to ask later on about how ethics are being sort of negotiated in the film? Cuz like as much on the one hand, like I agree with Ian, right? Like there's this sort of like stated ethical mantra that's going on, right? But then like the entire film is about Sam Neill suddenly growing a heart and liking children, right? <laughs> and that's a pretty anthropocentric set of themes, <laughs> right? It's kind of narrow-minded to say that that's the whole point of the movie. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there are cool dinosaurs and this heartwarming story. So like, but I, I do think like there there's this sort of like, interesting tension that we today, particularly around, you know, issues of bringing back woolly mammoths, the, the ability that we have in terms of gene editing, issues of climate change, like how do you figure, how do you, how do you state an ethical claim in a way that isn't necessarily inherently anthropocentric, while I think also acknowledging like we don't really want to give away the whole farm on there's something special about human beings. Hmm. And I think that's just, I think that's really challenging to try and figure out how to do. Um, yeah. And I, and I think film does it in a way that's really helpful because it's so accessible and it meets us in those moments of awe and, and feelings that give us um, a way into that, um, conversation that, you know, heartless academics who try to produce anxiety in the classroom don't. <laughs> You're like not speaking Ian. from experience. No, no, I'm talking about Ian. I mean, clearly he is the example. Of that. <laughs> clearly he's the heartless one, yeah. 
I I love also Kendra's question, but I'm very troubled by it, and and troubled by in what way, and troubled by Adam's response. Um, <laughs> I was as optimistic as I was going to be. I thought I, I thought I, I finally got there. You. you you got as far as you can. That's true. <laughs> Take his home. That's a deep, deep cut. <laughs> Just speaking the truth. Yeah. When we are very narcissistic as a whole, right? Humanity is extremely narcissistic. And yet I wonder if what is our, what is our purpose? This to me, to me, you're almost asking the question of also what is humanity's purpose in this world? So if we're talking about, well, they were, you know, going back to those couple of scenes, they were naturally select dinosaurs were naturally selected to do this. Are we also not naturally selected in some ways? Have but have we also found ways to not be naturally selected? As we all sit in our homes, <laughs> trying not to be naturally selected for something. No, no, no. You're supposed to end with the optimistic tone that leads us forward into something, something fun and great. That, no, no this, no, this is not okay. No, I like it. Keep going, Rachel. <laughs> Day six. Hey, six. This is hey, where Rachel goes. As someone who just got his COVID nineteen test back, <laughs> I appreciate that comment. Um, Continue. Yeah, I. <laughs> here, here's the optimistic spin. I think that we are far more than that, but it is our responsibility to take our narcissism away from ourselves. To say we are more than that, that we have the ability to save the horseshoe crab and have our vaccines. I don't want to get to the point where we're saying, well, we have to save the horseshoe crabs, therefore no more vaccines. I I think that that's a very dangerous place to put a hierarchy there, but a a both and, a yes and, let's live in that improv world. Rachel, can I also just like maybe point out for people who might not know the connection between horseshoe crabs and vaccines, like yeah. that they are connected. Because yes. at first I was like, what does that have to do with each other? But then their I remember. Their amazing blue blood, their blood. is used to but, test yeah. whether vaccines are safe or not. They used to just inject the vaccine into a rabbit's ear and then see if the rabbit died. And so this is a little bit nicer because they don't have to remove yeah. all the blood. They can yeah. put it back. There's a great radio lab episode about really this good. that I would recommend listening to after you're done with this episode. Yeah. Which will be in our show notes because I'm actually taking them this time. Um, <laughs> but anyway, keep going. I just wanted to put that out there. No, no, thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, that that I think it's our job to figure out how to live together. That it's not just... It's, it's an either or. So if we choose to go down the path of having a woolly mammoth, it's not simply for our own gain. It's how are we doing damage to the woolly mammoth? Are we doing damage to ourselves? Or how can we make this a symbiotic relationship? Because to me, that is our role. That is human's role in the world is not a choice, but a connectivity, hmm. a way of saying this is how we really can all just get along. 
And if we can answer those questions as we look at it, we'll be better off ethically in bringing those kinds of questions into our science. And if we can answer those questions going all the way back to Adam's sort of, you know, prove to me your contract grading, prove to me why you deserve this, prove to me why this is good for both and. So that's that's as much optimism as I can muster today. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, that's all I got. Okay. I think I would also just add that, like, yeah, I totally agree with Rachel, but that's also, even as we, like, as people have maybe thought of ourselves at different times as being like above it all, (laughs) um, like unnatural in a way, in that, like, we're, we're not animals, we're humans, specially created, if you believe that, or like, naturally selected but just like way better than everything else um we like whatever it is that you believe about human nature i think it's something that i would hope would be uncontroversial to say that we've always been in a a symbiotic relationship with our environment in Mm. like whatever that environment is we have never existed um, in a vacuum so to speak and so it doesn't seem like it should be that controversial to extend our concern for our own lives to what is around us, um, even though that that proves to be <laughs> pretty difficult. But <laughs> I think what I'd argue is that there's a good historical record of us choosing to ignore that impulse. To not. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Not arguing with that. But it just is sort of interesting how easy it is to forget the the nature of our relationship with nature. <laughs> um, so, let's... cue music. You do that so well. This has been episode thirty-seven of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Big thanks to all our supporters on patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast and all of you who are listening to podcasts even without a daily commute. Thanks for chilling out with us the past couple of weeks and watching our favorite movies with us. That was fun. We should do it again sometime. But hey, speaking of awkwardly trying to recreate in-person experiences over the internet, next week we're starting our new mini-series on our digital presence and why we all have a love-hate relationship with Zoom now. Yay! Week one is all about trying to translate ancient rituals over the internet and why, despite being super techie, it turns out I'm not all that good at it. But whatever, we're all figuring this out as we go, right? So take heart, friends. We're all lost, but at least we're lost together. Cue music.